Greetings and salutations, everyone. I hope you are having a fantastic morning, day, or evening, wherever you are joining us from. It feels good to be back, and I can't wait for you all to hear these last two episodes that we have in store. Please do not forget to check us out on Instagram at For the Record Brand and at our Twitter at FTR Brand, as we give a lot of updates on there. And that's where you can find out the latest information on what's happening with all things FTR. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode and for your continued support always. And with that being said, I'll pass it on to Cherie so she can share a little bit more information about today's episode before we get started. Thank you, Imani. And hello, everyone. This is episode eight, multi-level racism and historical trauma, reforming and changing the system. And this is also our second to last episode of season one. We are almost coming to an end, but I'm going to pass the mic to Angel to jump into the first question. Hello, everyone. I hope you're doing amazing. And as Sheree said, here is question number one. So I wanted to talk about critical race theory and what is it and why do you think schools want to ban the teaching of it? So this is a great question to start off with. I would say critical race theory, though, or CRT, is a way of understanding and presenting race, racism, and racial differences in regards to U.S. history, laws and policies, and other major structures or components. It's really an approach that was actually theorized in the 80s, but I think has gained more and more attention over time, specifically in regards to school education There is a common debate on whether or not it should be taught in schools. And I believe this is primarily because it teaches us that racism not only exists on an individual person-to-person level, but also can and does occur with structures or various elements of our society. So pretty much it focuses on acknowledging that race and racism go beyond one person being racist against another. And that race or racism can also be present through various structures embedded in the framework of America by playing a role in discriminating racial minorities and creating racial disparities and gaps on a large scale or level. I think those that are against CRT or want to ban it are scared to let go of the old ways of thinking and would rather accept a distorted and false view of race in America rather than to acknowledge the truth in a way. The truth being that racism is a real expansive concept that should be approached through acknowledgement first and foremost. In addition, those who want to ban it may also be afraid of how it makes America look and may view the theory as an attack on America itself, maybe. So essentially, I think it's a pride issue. And then there is also the potential reason that they simply don't want racism to be dismantled and banning this approach to teaching on race makes it that much easier to continue oppression on a larger scale, as most will remain unaware of how exactly racism has affected racial minorities and African-Americans specifically without CRT being taught. So maybe they just want the chaos to continue because I think teaching it in schools may be part of like a multi-pronged solution needed to end racism on all scales. I really had to read up and educate myself a bit more for this question. So I wanted to share just a few major features of the critical race theory in case anyone is interested or wondering. So for starters, the critical race theory specifically calls out 
colorblindness. Colorblindness is pretty much looking at a person as if their race is not a part of them and treating all people on a neutral type of level, per se. I specifically think of individuals that say they don't see race when I hear colorblindness, but when colorblindness is at play, the CRT states that it creates bias more than anything and should not be used as a lens. This mainly is because it does not allow for preferential treatment and is not fully inclusive of all the factors that should be considered when adopting new laws or acts of governance. That being said, race matters, always. You were born with it, so why should it be ignored or disregarded, especially when it has such a great impact for many racial minority groups? Another element of the CRT is racial integration. This is sharing a space and integrating all. The CRT doesn't necessarily support this tactic either, mainly because the dominant group at hand inevitably overpower or drown out the minority group in that type of setting. Race should not be downplayed. It should be acknowledged. So having racial consciousness is really outlined as a major way to approach race and racial differences by the CRT. So again, and more blatantly emphasizing that acknowledgement and specifically acknowledgement of race is key. So in sum, I think the critical race theory really aims to gain and support widespread racial consciousness along with deconstruction so that we can transform America and just come to a place where racial oppression does not exist, which I think we can all agree would be awesome. So with that being said, I just also think that teaching these types of concepts in schools could really open us up and potentially help us learn and heal from the past and current effects of racism in Black America. So I definitely agree with you, Imani, on a lot of the things you were saying. What is critical race theory? Critical race theory is a movement that consists of scholars and activists who critically analyze and observe um, U.S. laws that involve racial issues and racial justice in America. Um, I believe it was founded in the mid-1970s and primarily focuses on the premise that race is not a physical slash biological feature, but is a social construct invented and used to oppress and exploit people of color. I believe schools want to ban the teaching of it because it portrays a view that challenges and goes against the foundation the U.S. was built upon, which includes the laws that govern society. This view reflects that other subgroups have an advantage over others, and America truly isn't based on equality. I believe if you start to question what you believe in, you start to lose touch with what reality is which can lead to movements, riots, war, and maybe even overriding the system. Overall, it would lead to chaos and loss of control if people start to become aware of the truth. So I think that's the reason why mainly people don't want to come to that realization of what the truth is. And yeah, it could cause, you know, chaos. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you guys had some really great points. Critical race theory, as you guys were saying, includes ideals such as race being a social construct, meaning that it's simply an indicator made up by society and used as a tool to basically perpetuate privilege and power. And it's upheld by the legal system. In my opinion, critical race theory is probably a lot more convoluted than people think, and it is being discussed about more lately, but I still feel like a lot of people have a hard time navigating what it is and 
it's not really discussed as much as it should be, even though it is increasing in conversations. But yes, it is misconstrued. And at first it started out as a means to examine how the laws and systems promote racial inequality. But I do think it has kind of evolved since it has been around since the civil rights movement. And like I said, has recently garnered even more attention with BLM and other controversies on race and racism. And I feel like the opponents of CRT are against the teachings because they claim that it's divisive and that it's spreading the idea that basically all white people are racist no matter what, but that's not even the core value of what critical race theory is even saying. So it's just ignorant for that to be an argument on their part. But the states that are wanting to ban it are Idaho, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, Mm. Iowa, and uh, New Hampshire and Arizona. And they've all passed like legislation banning the discussion of training on unconscious bias discrimination and oppression and the idea that the U.S. is inherently racist. And like I was saying, the the critical race theory doesn't even say that all white people are racist. It really focuses on institutions like education system, criminal justice, Mm health care, and basically how they were built on and embedded with racism. And so by them saying that it's only focusing on like the personal or individual level of racism, that's missing the point of the whole theory, right? And they also claim that it would be harmful to students, but I feel like it'd be more harmful in my opinion to not teach critical race theory because it's keeping people ignorant by ignoring the country's racist history. And that is still very much impacting us presently in so many ways. And the least that can be done is to educate the country and have these difficult conversations. Reparations. Yes, that as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I agree with everything you guys were saying. I also really want to just emphasize that I actually saw how the critical race theory was being misconstrued because I, you know, like I said, I had to kind of read up on it because I wasn't as familiar. And one of the first YouTube videos I see is just all this stuff that I'm like, that's not what they're saying <laughs> right that sort of thing and i could just tell from the nature of it as well and so yeah um read up guys read up yes but i wanted to ask you guys what are the four levels of racism and can you like give an example of how you have been affected by at least one of these levels let's hear it That's a very good question. And I also had to do a little bit more research on it because I had learned about it so long ago. And I was like, how do I differentiate, you know, these levels? The four levels of racism consist of personal, interpersonal, institutional, and structural. Personal racism is your own perception of prejudices and discrimination that we've seen through culture, upbringing, and our own experiences. Interpersonal racism is relating to the communication between you and those portraying racism with their bias or bigotry, meaning they're not willing to allow others different opinions or behaviors 
to exist from their own. Institutional racism refers to the involvement on a higher level, such as within the police system, healthcare, or even school system. This type of racism is reflected through policies and even practices. And then lastly, structural racism is on a systematic level, which occurs over time when personal, interpersonal, and even institutional racism progress. Personally, I experienced interpersonal racism before because I knew the person was intentionally trying to get a reaction out of me by saying a certain word, um, you know, with the A, with an A at the end, you know, if, if you know what I mean. <laughs> um, so yeah, they were trying to get a reaction out of me. Um, and with that word, um, and I guess they were expecting me to feel uncomfortable, um, and to react maybe even aggressively, but I honestly reacted in the opposite way, which probably caught them off guard. And it was a good feeling proving people wrong and not entertaining people's negativity. And that's kind of how I approach situations when, you know, people want to, you know, like passively do certain things to get a reaction out of you. And I just react in a way where I'm like the opposite of what they probably want me to do, which is to, you know, go crazy or act outside of myself. But at the end of the day, I'm just like, who are you? You don't even know who I am. And at the end of the day, what does that word even mean to you? You know, you, you people, a lot of people, I feel like just say words and don't even know where it derives from or what it really truly means. So, yeah, that's that's my experience. <laughs> I definitely agree. I've had some similar, well, not similar experience, but similar interpersonal racism was I have an experience with. Mm-hmm. But as far as the four levels of racism, for personal or internalized, I define that as the conscious and unconscious beliefs about race and racism that originate within someone from society's stereotypes and biases and the patterns and thinkings such as feeling inferior or superior to another race. Interpersonal, I define that as interactions between racially different individuals and how the biases and societal influences affect how you interact with other races. And that's where things such as microaggressions and bigotry come into play. Third, institutional racism, I define as unfair or discriminatory procedures and policies within systems of power and institutions like schools, government, criminal justice system. And within that would be rules regulating how like Black people can wear their hair, restricting braids, dreads, or natural hairstyles, barriers, to employment, and even under and misrepresentation in institutions. And then for structural racism, I define that as, well, that's where you would find systemic racism, and it pertains to the normalized practices in society, such as uh, the racial wealth gap, housing discrimination, and mass incarceration. And going back to what I was saying before, I have also experienced interpersonal racism, 
through microaggressions. And I kind of spoke about it last episode, I think, how about being called how I'm acting white or being praised for speaking eloquently. And also when people say things such as you're pretty for a black girl, like that, and they don't realize that that's basically saying like, yeah, we can make a strong assumption from that statement that they're saying that they think black, most black people aren't beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. By saying that. And they think that it's a compliment, but it's really not. And then additionally, I have an experience where I remember that a teacher (laughs) mistook me for another black student and I did not even look like them. I think maybe we were the same height, like I'm short. And so there's not really a lot of other short people, but like, yeah, that was another thing. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's my experience. (laughs) Thanks for sharing, you guys. Um, Yeah, you really define the four levels of racism very well. So I'm not going to go into that too much. But as we know, there are four internalized, interpersonal, institutional, and structural racism. I, too, have been a victim of interpersonal racism. I have two examples, actually. One, I would say, is more on the lines of microaggressions, like what you were speaking on, Angel. For interpersonal racism, it's pretty much when you have an interaction or encounter with another person whose own individual racial beliefs have have an impact, whose own individual racial beliefs have an impact in that situation and result in it being racist, essentially. So my example is one day I was out at the farmer's market, patiently standing in line to get my food from a vendor. And I had my hair blown out and was wearing it down. For those that don't know, blown out just means like blow dried. So anyways, my hair was a little froish because it's not like I straightened it. But regardless of the state my hair was in, what interaction I had with this woman at the farmer's market should not have took place. So again, minding my own business. And all of a sudden, this Caucasian woman approaches me with big eyes and a look of awe asking can I touch your hair it looks so soft and voluminous and you know I had heard of situations like that before that happened to me and I would say how I would react and stuff like that but what I did in that moment like I didn't even expect myself to actually do and I kind of was actually disappointed with myself um but anyways What I really thought, though, is, ma'am, this is not a petting zoo. We are literally at the farmer's market. Like, I do not know you because I did not react like I had intended to. And that's probably mainly because I was in shock that I was even being asked such a thing. Anyways, I'm not going to spill any more on this. But if you do want to know how I did react in that situation, then hit me up. All that matters now is that no random person should be asking to touch your hair. You are not a pet. You are a queen or king. Can't forget the fellas. To me, this encounter was interpersonal racism, no doubt, though. It may not seem like it to some, but it is, and I will never forget how it made me feel. I have another example that is more apparent interpersonal racism, just for reference, too. Um, but you can see things can be on the sly as well. So not everything is straightforward. And like, I knew that based off of how I felt like about the situation as well. 
But my other one is, so in high school, I ran track and me along with like three of my friends who were black were talking in the middle of the field. And this girl who was white was also chatting with us. And somewhere in the conversation, the white girl decided that it would be okay to address one of my black male friends by the N-word. So with that, you can just clearly see that interpersonal racism can be tricky to see. But if you are a victim of it, there's no denying it because your reaction and how you feel as a result of the interaction tell all. I promise. I definitely agree with both of you guys. You made some really good definitions for those four levels. And it was good hearing you guys' experiences. So, you know, thank you for sharing. As for the next question, what are your thoughts and knowledge on how racism came about? So I guess most of the racism discussion is usually just based around slavery and discrimination within the U.S. And no one really talks about like where the ideal of racism and race even came from and the question of whether race or racism came first. Because as we said before, race is a social construct that was created. And there's honestly so much debate over the definition of what race is and what it entails. People really do struggle to define it because it's used in so many different ways. And it's because it was created as a way to differentiate groups and as a justification for colonization, hierarchies, and for what eventually would become racism. And modern day race is mostly just seen as black and white but even now as I said race can encompass so much more depending on how it's used which is why I think racism or prejudice and discrimination should be traced back to things such as like the extermination of Jews in the common era and other religious-based discrimination and hate crimes and how there was that belief that all men were created equal But the idea of superiority and inferiority allowed for the justification that the people who were considered inferior weren't even human. They were dehumanized and enslaved and treated as inferior. And then race became that distinction between, I guess, basically the inferior and superior. But I definitely think racism came before the idea of race was really constructed and There just wasn't really a name to characterize it. Thanks, Angel. That was a real interesting take on that question. To me, racism has likely been around forever. It's affected multiple minority groups from African-Americans to Native Americans to Middle Easterns to Hispanics to Asians. And that's throughout history, American history in particular. I honestly have no idea when it started per se, but if I had to guess, it was a long, long, long time ago. The earliest references of racism that I do know of date back to Native Americans being slaughtered for not adopting Christianity and sticking to their cultural beliefs and then having their land taken as a result of that. After that, I'd probably say slavery and the civil rights era followed and so on. I cannot say anything for sure before that time or in reference to non-American history, except for South Africa and their experience with apartheid. But racism, no doubt, has been present for as long as I can remember. And I have never heard anyone speak of a time where it did not exist. That being said, I do think 
that it is possible that racism likely stemmed from colorism, as colorism is something that I do recall being referenced in early history. I think that maybe somehow colorism warped into racism, although both do exist today. This is just a thought, though. It's possible that maybe favoritism towards lighter shades is what led up to racism, and that is something that we do know many cultures had. I can at least say for African-American and Asian cultures, at least. The same is probably true for early European culture as well. There was and probably still is a lot of favoritism towards the lighter end of the spectrum as far as color goes, but maybe that is how we got to full-fledged racism. I don't know. Imani and Angel, you guys made some really interesting points and made me even think further on the topic or the question further than what I had originally thought too. So yeah, when did racism come about? Did race come first or did racism come first? That was a really interesting thing to think about what you said, Angel. And from what I know, since the beginning of time, tribes, empires, etc., have always used strategic plans to conquer each other for their resources, such as land, territory, vegetation, minerals, etc. And their skin tone was a determining factor on where you're from. So if you were very light, then you were more so in colder climates. If you were darker skin, then you were in the warmer climates. And so based on where you're from, we'll determine what resources you have. So that's how tribes and empires began to travel to different places to find more resources because they didn't have the climate to make the food that they needed to survive, or they didn't have the minerals they needed to, you know, trade and create value, I guess. So people migrated, so to say. And when people migrated to other places to find resources, they realized others had more resources in them. And I think it all kind of stemmed from greed. I think it was a greed thing, maybe. I don't know. And maybe that's how race came about and racism because they were jealous or maybe they had greed for the resources that other people had. And, you know, Africa was once a place with bountiful resources due to its rich soil and its perfect climate. So they truly never had to fight for resources because they had everything accessible to them. But as for the other people who migrated to Africa, they were coming to find resources, to find what they needed. So I think once migrants realized how much Africans had, they used violence to get those resources or manipulation. And unfortunately, maybe Africans never truly knew how much they really were at an advantage because they had everything. So they were open to maybe sharing their ideas, their thoughts, their resources because I guess they maybe assumed they had an endless supply. And, you know, that's how maybe it came about. I really truly don't know, but it's definitely a good question to dig deeper and think about and start a conversation about. Yeah, I really loved hearing from both of you guys. You had some really insightful comments after that question. So my question was, what is historical trauma and what impact does it have today? 
So historical trauma is a multi-generational impact on the emotional and psychological well-being of groups and their descendants. It is essentially trauma being passed down from generation to generation as a result of previous trauma over an extensive period of time and of extreme nature. So pretty much historical trauma is when a circumscribed group or people, usually with distinct cultural features and a racial background, are so greatly affected by their history that it is passed down time and time again. Native Americans as well as African Americans are two minority groups that I would say are the most impacted by historical trauma. Native Americans specifically experience severe violence and mistreatment through colonization, as well as the dampening of their culture through genocide. Both the lengthy duration and extent of this treatment resulted in trauma becoming embedded in that racial group. For African Americans, this is the same case, except for oppression, slavery, and continued systemic racism against Blacks are to blame. Historical trauma has a major impact today as it is the reason why there is a prevalence for certain medical conditions and behavioral health issues, alcoholism, substance use, PTSD, depression, suicide, low birth weight babies. Those are just a few to name, but the list goes on on how historical trauma has had an impact today on racial minorities. This subject is one that I've had the opportunity to delve in more as I work with the Native American population and SAMHSA or the Substance and Mental Health Services Administration. And so it is often discussed. And if you would like to chat or have questions related to this, please feel free to reach out. I definitely liked everything you said, Imani. And I definitely agree with a lot that you said as well. My definition for historical trauma is the physical, mental, and or emotional side effects that are due to major cultural, racial, ethnic group events that occur, such as the oppression of minorities and slavery, the Holocaust, and the violent colonization of the Native Americans. It has drastically impacted minorities by setting them back in various aspects of society from their majority counterparts, which has caused America's laws, policies, practices that make up the foundation of America to further create institutional and structural racism. It has caused damage to the human psyche in minorities because of their subconscious beliefs that they're inferior to their majority counterparts as well. And I feel like it's very much impacted the Black community. And, you know, I can say that personally for myself because I am African-American, but I know it has also affected other minorities as well. Yeah, you guys really did a good job of giving an overarching definition and touching on the impact that historical trauma has on us today. So briefly, I'll just say that also, as you mentioned, this trauma leads to things such as substance abuse and mental illness. And historical trauma impacts Black people today, as many of us experience things such as PTSD, like response when interacting with police, even if you even haven't had a personal experience that was fatal or violent. And this trauma shows also when we read, see, and hear about the slain Black men and women like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and many, many more named and unnamed from the Black community. 
And it's quite literally triggering and it's rooted in this historical trauma. Thanks, Angel and Cherie. Kind of just to follow up with that question, how do you guys think we can best overcome historical trauma? How do you actively try and address your historical trauma in your everyday life? I'll start, and this is a really good question. And I believe it will take not only working within the minority group, but also think we need to work with the majority group in order to overcome and restore the historical trauma. I believe to resolve a conflict between two people, both parties must change and put in work. There are so many tactics, strategies, approaches I could come up with, but I truly don't know what would work the best. Maybe a combination of cognitive and behavioral approach. That's at least what my psychology BS degree is telling me for that. (laughs) But the ways I try to address my historical trauma in my everyday life is just by working hard, trying my best. And reinforcing myself that I am great. I can be anything I put my mind to. And by having friends and family who are aware of it as well. Yeah, you had some really great points, Shuri. Personally, to address my own historical trauma in everyday life, I tried to limit my consumption of some of the social media and news clips and videos that show the violence and heinous killings or brutality against people of color. To combat and overcome historical trauma, I guess, overarching as an issue, we first need to address the history that caused the trauma, make sure that it's accurate and not misrepresented or watered down. There's a reason that the trauma runs from generation to generation, so we can't downplay the history that comes along with any racial, ethnic, or cultural group and acknowledge the trauma that resulted and see how these minority groups are disadvantaged. And then we must work to provide those experiencing trauma, the affordable and adequate mental health services or other resources to help combat things such as substance abuse and the like. Yeah, I completely agree with you guys. As a public health professional, I always like to think of the P in public health as prevention. Prevention is best always, but with historical trauma, it almost seems as if prevention doesn't have a true place, mainly because those amongst racial groups affected by it are already kind of predisposed to it. That being said, we are not at a complete loss. I think we can best overcome historical trauma by first becoming aware that the trauma is there. Even though it may not seem apparent at a given time, acknowledge that trauma is there. Next, I would say to seek help, you know, talk to someone, a therapist preferably. And when choosing a therapist, it may not hurt to choose one that is familiar with the concept of historical trauma in regards to your racial group. Have healthy coping mechanisms to address unsettled anxiety and incorporate healthy practices into your life that can alleviate stress. I personally address my historical trauma by just continuing to focus on healthy practices like I just mentioned. For me, that looks like yoga, meditating, connecting to my culture, and seeking help if need be. Traveling is another one that may just be unique to me, but it works. I definitely agree with both you, Angel, and Imani. You made some really, really good points when it comes to how we can overcome historical trauma and, of course, our own everyday trauma for ourselves. And I think that's very uplifting for us to just be aware of it and to find ways for us to combat it each and every day. As for the next question, how have drugs contributed to institutional racism in America? 
I think the over-policing and targeting of brown and black people in urban and low-income areas leads to those higher rates of drug offense, arrest, and incarceration. So there's many incarcerated individuals being sentenced to many years for small possession of drugs like marijuana. And honestly, it's insane because many of the minorities are criminalized for the sale of use of the drug, while the white counterpart are the ones who have invested in the industry and they're making millions from it. And honestly, that's very much institutional racism in itself. Yes, I'm in complete agreement. Drugs have been a recurrent theme throughout history, although each time they are discussed, you often find that certain racial minority groups are most impacted by them. As far as institutional racism and drugs go, crack cocaine and the war on drugs comes to mind first. The war on drugs was a controversial theme in American history that yielded multiple negative health and social effects on African-Americans specifically. Reagan initiated the war on drugs in 1982, and cocaine was brought into the U.S. to fund the effort. Supposedly, cocaine was only intended for use by the higher-ups or those who could afford it to start, but if you have watched Snowfall, then you already know pretty much the whole story to an extent. Side note, watch Snowfall if you haven't yet. But... For those who aren't familiar, pretty much the U.S. was responsible for the crack epidemic. The war on drugs was institutional racism because there was an initial planned effort by the government to disseminate drugs in America as a whole, which pivoted to targeting African-Americans in particular with the introduction of crack in the black community. And then this was followed by petty drug penalties enforced by the police, which, you know, sounds pretty familiar from what Angel is saying now with the whole marijuana situation. So again, you can just see that that same theme is even at play today or more recent times. But yeah, so it was really just followed up by petty drug penalties enforced by the police and subsequently jail time. Those caught with crack had greater penalties than those with cocaine. And crack was primarily found in African-American communities because it was cheaper, but it was also extremely addictive and destructive. So this orchestrated plan called the War on Drugs, initiated by the U.S. government, not only left a large portion of African-Americans dependent on crack with lingering medical and mental health concerns, but also resulted in the mass incarceration of African-Americans. So I really just believe that that was the start. I definitely agree with both of you guys on your points that you made on this question. The War on Drugs plays a really big role, like Imani was saying. And then like you were saying, Angel, about marijuana being legal in some places and people making a profit and monetizing it. And people are currently serving time for using it or even selling it. And I think that's very contradictory and it's wrong, in my opinion. People shouldn't be penalized for something that is now legal. So they need to reevaluate you know, everybody who was penalized for having marijuana now. And as for how drugs contribute to institutional racism, over the years, several African-Americans have been incarcerated for drug possession or use when illegal drug trade started in this country because of the government. In the past, the charge for possession of crack cocaine was more severe than that of powder cocaine, despite there being no difference between the two which is exactly what Imani was saying. And the media is what misrepresented crack cocaine as more potent and addictive and to lead to violence when there was actually no evidence to support that. 
In addition, this led to more incarcerations of African-Americans because they were more likely to be in possession of crack. In conclusion, this became an evident racial injustice and continues to be today. Yeah, I think you guys made some excellent points about institutional racism in America and the way that drugs have contributed. Next, I wanted to discuss how can we combat mass incarceration in America? Defund the jails. You heard. Yeah. We could, we could start with that. <laughs> but also a major issue, I think, is the inability to tease out crime and mental health. They need to do a better job at this. But mass incarceration actually began in the 1970s and really picked up in the decades after that with the war on drugs. So that was really very much a driver, I would say, for the mass incarceration. Five years after 1980, the prison population increased by around 200,000. So that tells you right there that mass incarceration is a thing. And to combat mass incarceration, I think those who have the authority and the willingness to change are our best hope. On an individual level, the best way we can combat it is by staying up to date with legislation, protesting and petitioning. But really those with the power and position, I think, have the greatest voice. So if we can somehow get people in those positions that can make a change, then that needs to happen. We also need to somehow stop lawmakers from using outside entities to drive the lawmaking process. Corporations such as Alec really contributed to the large increase seen in the prison population as they were closely involved and connected to the legislation in the past. And honestly, I do not get why they ever got a say in legislation to begin with. This country is supposed to be for the people, not for corporations. But hey, this is America, like Childish Gambino said. (laughs) (laughs) This is America. Also, FYI, Walmart also benefits from the lawmaking process and is associated with ALEC. I have since stopped supporting them for many other reasons, but this was another reason or reminder not to go back. Just to throw out some incarceration facts now, the lifetime incarceration rate is one in three for blacks and one in seven for whites. So again, that shows you there is mass incarceration specifically (laughs) with African-Americans and actually African-American males more so, I would say. This goes to show that, again, institutional racism is still at play even after the war on drugs and just continued on the uptrend since then. 40.2% of the total prison population consists of African-Americans, and that is jaw-dropping to me. There is absolutely no reason why jails should benefit or profit from this. Mm -mm. This is America. Yes, I definitely agree with everything you said, Imani. Defund, defund, and defund. (laughs) (laughs) And I think a way we can combat mass incarceration is by becoming aware, of course, and spreading awareness to others. We can also start by protesting, like you said, also, and signing petitions related to this problem. And, of course, support critical race theory. Vote when it comes to officials focusing on these issues and or even obtaining higher roles in society to actively make those changes. 
I feel like a combination of all those things can really drive, you know, a decrease in the mass incarceration of African-Americans. And the numbers are just really alarming. We have to make a difference by doing these things in order to make change, in order to better our community. Yes, 100%. I agree with you guys. Vote, protest, stay informed. The U.S. incarcerates its citizens more than any other country, which is a lot to be said, seeing as a lot of this incarceration isn't even preventing the crime. And tying back into the last question, the war on drugs is a large part of the mass incarceration rate. So reforming the sentencing for drug offenses and stop giving hefty sentences to low-level offenses and ensuring that the actual serious offenders who put the public at risk ensuring that they are the ones that are facing adequate consequences or being given the necessary treatment if it's a drug treatment situation is all part of the solution. But there are honestly so many other aspects that can be reformed as well. Personally, I don't have all the answers, but the prison system is modern-day slavery and it really just does not sit right with me. So we all need to do our part, stay informed, and fight to defund. Defund. <laughs> yes, most definitely. So do you guys believe that a world without racism is possible? And if you do, then why? And if not, then why not? Um, I guess I'll start on this question. I feel this is the end question when it comes to civil rights activists, influencers, us minorities doing our due diligence to reach the end goal. I want to believe that, but then I also think, wouldn't that make this a perfect fair world? And then I say, "Mm, there's no such thing as perfect. So (laughs) for me, despite not truly knowing what will come out of it, I'm going to do what I feel is right and fight for what I believe in. So I have hope and that's what truly keeps me going and drives me to, you know, see better for maybe something I won't see for myself, but hoping that, you know, the next generation can see better. And that's kind of what drives me, which is, you know, what everybody's drive should be. It's selfless to think that way that, you know, you won't benefit from what could possibly be, but the feeling that there is a possibility that better can come for others sits with me in a place that's rewarding. So for me, I would have to say yes and no. Yes, because I think it is possible racism is learned or taught and thus it can be unlearned. No one is born racist but it would take so much more than what has been done and what is currently being done to eradicate racism. And it it takes effort from all to educate, stay informed and address and call out and dismantle and rebuild the systems that continue to fuel racism and discrimination. That being said, I feel that some of these deep rooted biases and stigmas may always exist because it's human nature to fear what you don't understand or don't know, thus people will always have that other mentality when looking to outside groups, whether that's a religious group, ethnic group, or looking at race. Yeah, I think you guys really hit right on that. And Angel, that was an interesting view to say yes and no. For me, 
Well, I mean, anything is possible. And, well, if anything is possible, then I'd agree that an absolutely racism-free world is also possible. But the realist in me just cannot agree with that. There are billions of people in the world, like around 7 billion, and each with their own experience and thoughts on race. And so although a 100% racism-free world may not be possible, I think we can come close. I do believe that and have hope that we can attain it in the future. It would take time, lots of time and effort to do so, but we can eliminate racism if we all come together. Come together. Yeah, I think both of you guys made some really good points and had and brought a lot of wisdom and uplifting thoughts to that question. So hopefully people can be an advocate for change and even have a little bit more hope than what we had before or what people have before. So that was beautiful. That was beautiful. And as for the last question, what are some ways we can give back to the Native American population? Well, as you know, I'm a big fan of reparations, but uh, <laughs> yes, I feel the simplest way is to give them back land that was rightfully theirs. But I know that there's more complications to that. But I still feel like at the end of the day, it would be easy to give them at least some land, even if it's not that particular land that they owned originally, like some land is owed. And like I was saying, we spoke about reparations in a prior episode, and I stand by my stance that I think groups such as Native Americans need to be compensated in some way, shape, or form for the heinous treatment, genocide, and displacement and relocation of their people. Also offering mental health and substance abuse rehabilitation and better access to health care. Um, since historical trauma is the cause of much of the mental and physical ailments that Native Americans face. I also think that commemorating the culture and not whitewashing the history of Native Americans in America is a great way to start as well. Yes, absolutely. First and foremost, I would say educate yourself. That is how you can give back. You cannot learn everything, but really try and familiarize yourself with elements of Native Native American culture. Next, I would say to be culturally sensitive and avoid ignorance. This is a good lead to follow when you are opening yourself to any culture aside from your own. You don't know what offends certain people, so just tread lightly. Also, I would say supporting Native businesses and giving back to Native organizations through donations or other efforts is another way to give back. For example, you could take a trip to Miami and actually go to the Hard Rock Casino. The Seminole Tribe owns that casino and other establishments, and so that is another way you can actually support respectfully. Um, And that helps economically as well. So lastly, I think the best way that you can give back, in my opinion, is by joining the effort to help various Native communities. So pretty much working directly with Native communities and organizations to help American Indians and Alaska Natives. This is the greatest impact I have made this far 
working as an epidemiologist for a nonprofit tribal organization. And although I know I am not everyone, so when I think of my, and although I know I'm not everyone, so when I think of myself in the early stages of my position or even prior, I think I really tried to educate myself. So that's why I say educate yourself first. And that was just on all things in my life that had to do with the population I was helping. And I will tell you, I learned so much. Like my own high school mascot was cultural appropriation to the max. And along with Land of the Lakes, to how tribal nations are sovereign entities, although there is murky water around that due to the past and current continuous fight to maintain and preserve the rights of Native Americans. Okay, now that made sense. My greatest, my greatest suggestion is to do your research on how you would like to support specifically and then to just always be respectful. I definitely agree with both of you guys. And, you know, to make it short, you, I could just say reparations for sure. But it's like, what kind of reparations, you know, what do the Native American population need? So, you know, I think that's important. Figuring out what do they need in order to come to a place of health again and to restore as much damage that was done. And of course, like Imani said, educating yourself, that's very important. And I would also say, you know, stop culturally appropriating Native American culture, give back and even work for organizations that strive to actively support and promote the lives of Native Americans. And I think, you know, doing all that um, will show and drive a force that will help to give back as much as we can for sure Mm -hmm. yes 100 percent. you guys really dived in on that topic and i agree with your answers on how to give back to the native americans because i'm pro reparations but (laughs) yes that is the end of episode eight thank you so much everyone for listening to multi-level racism and historical trauma reforming and changing the system. We enjoyed unraveling and analyzing these issues that personally impact us, our community and country. If you didn't know, this is also the last episode before the season finale. Don't forget to check us out on Instagram at For the Record Brand and Twitter at FTR Brand for podcast updates and more information about the sisters behind FTR. We have had an amazing season so far with you guys, and we will see you next time for our last episode of season one. Bye. Audi. Bye-bye.